You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Robert Grasses, it's good to see you. Nice to see you too, Dan. So welcome to everyone in the uh, Sophia audience, the Blogging Head TV uh, audience. Uh, I'm here with Robert Grasses, and um, Robert is a professor of philosophy at California State University, Northridge, uh, and has been since 2008. Um, where's, where's, where's Northridge? Yeah. So it's in Southern California. It's about 45 minutes North and West of Los Angeles. And so is it sort of an extended, is it in, is it in LA County? Yeah. Uh, hold on. Yeah, I think it is. Is that part of that that 14 million person sprawl? It stretches. I I believe so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I, I am like terrible with geography, so I could be wrong, but I don't think I am this time. In fact, uh, I was so bad with geography that one of my desired Christmas presents was a, was a map of L.A., which, which I got just so I could, like, know where I am in relation to everything. Yeah. Um, and um, you got your Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor in 2007, mm-hmm. which is where I did my undergraduate degree in philosophy, which mm-hmm. I got in 1990. Um, you, t- you do research in Kant, philosophy of religion, Hume, philosophy of education, metaphilosophy, um, epistemology of disagreement. You do all sorts of stuff. Um, and um, we've, been, uh, we've been actually chatting informally. We actually had a, a pretty lengthy video, a sort of Skypey discussion just yeah. that we didn't record um, because we thought we might want to do something together. And um, maybe as a, as a springboard, I just, you just published a piece for us at the Electric Regard called this Philosophy Okay. Our aim was to talk about the philosophy profession in various uh, dimensions. Um, so one of the things we were going to talk about is a recent, uh, and I will link to all these things, of course, a white paper mm-hmm. that was published um, by a group of philosophers um, having to do with publication standards and ethics, which of which I wrote a very, very uh, critical mm-hmm. essay about. Um, Scathing. That ties into more general criticisms I have of the profession and especially its aspects of its institutional structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to talk about element aspects of the profession anyway, and then your essay sort of comes in with regard to the pressure from another angle, but it's relevant in ways, um, uh, in many ways. So we agreed that we would start just by talking about your piece. Yeah. And so maybe you can, um, <clears throat> you know, give a sense of to people what's the central question of the piece? What is it you're trying to work out? Um, I'm in the essay. Sure. So the central question is, is it permissible <clears throat> for me to continue being a philosophy professor. And the reasons to wonder whether it is are, first of all, that um, I don't see myself as the kind of guy who's likely to produce research that's important for the, the field or maybe even any field. And so I don't see the value of my career as probably being one that has much to do with the research I produce. And second of all, um, while I have spent a lot of time developing my teaching, learning more about teaching. One of the things that seems to be a recurring theme in the stuff I read in the pedagogical literature is that it's extremely difficult to teach students in a way that's effective. And by that, I mean 
a lot of them don't want to be there. And so they don't learn what you teach them. And then even if they do learn it, they don't learn it for long. They don't retain it for long. And even if they do retain it for long, they're not good at applying it outside of the classroom. And for, just to, just to give an example, in case that's not clear, I, I have a critical thinking course I teach. And uh, a lot of critical thinking courses cover fallacies. I don't cover fallacies. And one of the reasons I don't cover fallacies is that even if you get your students to know like all the fallacies there are, um, it's one thing for them to recognize an ad hominem fallacy on a test you give them, but it's quite another one for them to recognize it when they're out talking to somebody just in life and knowing when that person is or isn't using the ad hominem fallacy and transfer. If there were transfer, it would mean that when they learn the ad hominem fallacy in my class, they'd be able to apply it outside of my class. But I'm very skeptical that that happens for the vast majority of my students. Um, and then finally, I, I, find, I find that the fallacies just get wind up getting um, sort of weaponized in a kind of a, a, a robotic matter. Yeah, um, we don't teach them either, and, and my main reason is because a lot of the times they're not fallacies, um, and so you yeah, know, informal fallacies, um, yeah. right? And so you know, it winds up getting used as kind of a checklist that people mm-hmm. um, that you know it just strikes me as doing more harm than good. So I mean, I tend to agree with you on that. Um, but anyway, so. so one issue that you have is with the efficacy significance of your research. Another has to do with the efficacy, the significance of your teaching. Yeah. What else? The the third thing that a professor could do is become an administrator and then try to affect positive change at the administrative level. But I think the incentives at that level are just really strongly against making positive change. So like the kind of change I'd want to do if I were an administrator would be things like, initiatives that improve teaching, but it's very difficult to get those initiatives through because often improving teaching might require more work from the faculty. It might require assessment. It might require administrators telling faculty, hey, you should teach like this rather than the way you're teaching, which faculty will probably rightly see as a threat to their autonomy. And, you know, a lot of faculty are skeptical about pedagogy, the pedagogical literature in the first place. They, they just don't think it works like that. And there's just frankly a lot of... I'm one of those. Yeah, you are. Okay. Well, we can talk about that. But there, there's frankly just a lot of inertia, right? There, if you're a faculty member who, who's been teaching, let's say, 10, 15 years, and you've been teaching in one way, to be told, hey, you should do things in a very different way, even if you are convinced by the data, you're still not going to want to do it because it's just so unnatural to you. Yeah. And also, the same thing goes for the students. They they find it unnatural, in my experience, when I try certain gaudy teaching approaches that they're not used to, and there's, like, just the foreignness of it makes them resist. So I just think trying to make things happen by becoming an administrator, that also seems like a very unpromising path. And then the, the sort of arguably most philosophical claim of the piece is the idea that if you're in a profession where you're not making a positive difference – and you could be making a positive difference, then you should probably not be in that profession anymore and should switch to one where you can make more of a positive difference, at least insofar as it doesn't make you like miserable. Um, and so, uh, so that's sort of like the argument a, in a nutshell. That's a, it's a soft version of a kind of a singerist, singerite, effective altruism argument. It's not, not the full blown version of it. No. Um, um, it's not as extreme, but it's in that universe of sort of argument, right? I mean, it's, it's, 
Yeah. That, 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 that you're, you should subject your, 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 your work commitments to a kind of a utilitarian calculus, right? I wouldn't, I'm not comfortable with calling it utilitarian calculus, but um, like the, the two issues I bring up in the article are, first of all, I don't think I'm, I might not be making a positive difference in my profession. And second of all, I might either be making a negative difference or I might be sort of part of an institution that overall is bad for the world. And so there's a kind of like issue of, you might even say integrity, right? That I shouldn't be part of this institution, even if my not being part of it won't make any difference. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it, it actually reminds me of things like, um, I think Walter Sinnott Armstrong has this article saying that basically driving a gas guzzler on a Sunday afternoon for fun, it's not immoral because it doesn't do anything to contribute to climate change. Uh, cause it's just at the individual level, you really make no difference. And, um, you can't, <laughs> and, and if you make no difference at the individual level, then you don't really have an obligation to, um, to do anything uh, about it. And so you don't have an obligation to change your behavior in environmentally friendly ways. But I, I found myself sort of like strongly negatively reacting to that article. And, um, and one of the funny things about that article, he says, you do have an obligation to try to convince other citizens that they should vote for policies that will make a difference, which is funny because how much good is that your... doesn't make any difference either, your vote. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so it's like, it's an, ar- it's an argument, and maybe this is right, it's an argument that says, you know, honestly, there's no reason, there's no morally important reason to vote, right? You don't have an obligation to vote. You don't have an obligation to change your uh, individual behavior at the, for, for environmental reasons. And presumably, you wouldn't have an obligation, like even if you were convinced that, say, factory farming is immoral and should end, you wouldn't have an obligation to like not eat factory farmed food because after all you're purchasing or not purchasing uh factory farmed meat is not going to make any difference to the practice of factory. Right. Farming. Right. And so um, I, I tend to think that no, no, you do have an individual obligation to refrain insofar as you can from contributing. So this is why you're saying that this is not essentially a utilitarian standard. But yeah. when you say to me, well, you know, I have a duty to not do this job but do a different job if the job I'm doing doesn't have a positive impact and the job I could be doing has has one or a greater one, mm-hmm. that sounds to me like a utilitarian standard. I mean, what do you mean by having a what do you mean by having a positive impact if not you know, affecting some good consequence, right? Some good state uh, of affairs. So it may not be utilitarian, but it's certainly consequentialist in the sort of the. So, so Kant has this view that um, you should adopt as a maxim, not letting your talents rust, as I think he puts it. Hmm. And also the view that you should contribute to others, permissible happiness. Right. And one question is how does he conceive of those obligations? Does he conceive of them in a maximizing way? Or does he conceive of them in a way where you just have to have the maxim, right? Right. You just have to make it, you know, part of your character to like do good for other people and to improve yourself when you can. And um, I'm, I'm on the fence as to what he thinks. I do tend to think probably that it's a maximizing yeah. view. 
And um, although does it really matter what he thinks as opposed to what the the best version of the view is? I mean, I mean what yes. he th- what he actually thinks is of historical interest, but to the extent to which you're making a case about what you should and shouldn't do, yeah, it seems to me that that then you know the question of what he actually thought is less in- important than you know well what's the best what's the best version of a view that then makes sense of your of your position, right? I mean. Yeah, so, so, but in either case, I'm not sure he's a consequentialist, is the point. Oh, no, Kant is not a consequentialist, certainly. Well, I'm not going to say certainly David Comiskey thinks he is, and he's got some pretty good reasons, but I'm going to say that even if you have the view that you should maximize your self-improvement and your contribution to others' permissible happiness, that all takes place within certain constraints that you're not allowed to violate, right? Certain inviolable constraints. So, uh, so you could say it's consequentialist within limits, if you want to, in which case my point would be consequentialist. But if you adopt the just, you just have to have the maxim and occasionally make it part of your life to like contribute to others' permissible happiness and to improve yourself as a person, that doesn't seem to me consequentialist because it's not maximizing. But at the same time, maybe it's satisficing, right? Or not, I shouldn't say satisfying, satisficing. I should say there's some threshold you're supposed to reach. And then once you reach that yeah. threshold, anything above that is super erogatory. And yeah. so I guess my view is that like, there, there's probably like if you like I'm 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 a very lucky person, right? I I have a you know enough money. I have a nice house. I have you know a family I love, and um and I you know have a lot of I think talents that I could use to improve other people's lives. And so, I guess my my just intuitive sense is that I have an obligation to use my talents to improve other people's lives if I can. Not necessarily maximizing, but plus rather than zero and rather than minus, if you know what I mean. Positive rather than yeah. negative. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, what you're worried about, I've literally not spent one second concerned with uh-huh. in the 51 years I've been alive. Okay. Um, it's, it's such a foreign alien way of thinking to me. Mm-hmm. I would argue, and I don't know how deep we're going to get that it's it's a it represents a fundamental misuse of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't think garden variety, daily, ordinary matters of life. I, I don't. It somewhat falls under what I've been calling the morality everywhere problem, mm-hmm. in that I just think it's a mistake to moralize all these dimensions of your life in this way, and to and to think about the choices you make in this way. I would argue that overwhelmingly the decisions and choices we make are overwhelmingly prudential and have absolutely nothing to do with moral principles at all, nor should they. Um, okay, that nor should they, I wonder um, about the um, Nor should they in a, in, in a not moral sense of should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, and, um, um, but beyond that, I also just don't buy the neg- the, the super negative picture that you're painting of your various efficacies and the relevant um, um, uh, weight of them in the overall picture of whether you're doing good for people in the course of your life, whether you're sufficiently discharging your duty to contribute to people's happiness. Mm -hmm. There's a gazillion ways in which people do that. Mm -hmm some of which might be professional, but not, which need, not need, need necessarily not be professional. Um, um, you know, a person might 
spend their, you know, eight hours a day, you know, screwing, you know, screwing screws onto something in, a, in some assembly line. Um, but they may be, you know, a very valued member of their community. They may, you know, uh, they may uh, coach the little league team. They may, you know, they, they may, and all sorts of other, in other words, you know, I, I, I find this sort of fixation on, on, you know, you know, am I, am I, you know, doing these moral things through my sort of daily work, you know, when I go and, you know, sign a form or something, I just find a weird way to, I, I, it's the sort of way of thinking about something that only a philosopher could think of. And it's sort of part of the reason I think why people don't really like us very much. Um, uh-huh. um, I, I have Susan Wolfish objections to it. There are moral mm-hmm. saint aspects of it that, that not only do I think are philosophically problematic, but, produce types of people that I never want to spend time with. Um, and so I just, I, I don't approach my daily life like this. Um, but I also have a substantive objection to the, the, the negativity. I would contest every single way in which you say you're not having any efficacy and waving at some half-assed social science about it really doesn't impress me at all um, mm-hmm. because most of that social science is pretty... Do you think almost all stuff, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, they can't, you look at the replication crisis in psychology. Right. And I guarantee you that the kind of social science getting behind this stuff is 10 times shabbier, right? In terms I of, doubt that. I doubt that actually. Its, in terms of its rigor. I'll and tell you why stuff, I doubt that. It, it, you can't, you can't get shit out of these sorts of surveys. I, I mean, that's the sort of, I mean, this is all, all the stuff is based on various testimonies, Right. Well, what do you mean by testimony? Like just of what something was worth to somebody, or what, whether somebody remembered something, or or what impact it had on them, or you know, I, I just don't accept that that what people say about these things, which is what you get when you do social scientific investigations, unless you're looking at things like just hard economic outcomes and things like that. So, but in so that case, that doesn't sustain the kind of stuff you're talking about, right? I mean, right? No, I'm not worried about hard economic outcomes. I'm actually worried about <laughs> it's not it's not surveys where you ask somebody, "Did you learn from this class?" and they say yes, and then you say, "What did you learn?" and they can't answer that. That 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 wouldn't do a great job. It's actually stuff like um, so. There was this book that made a stir. I think it was 2011 called "Academically Adrift," which you might be familiar with where what they did in this book is that they did a longitudinal survey of 1,500 undergraduates at four-year colleges across the nation. They tried to randomize it as much as they could. And what they did is they gave them this critical thinking skills test, okay, at in their freshman year, and then they gave it again four years later, and they looked at the degree to which students improved. And they found that something like, 36% made no improvement at all on this test. And, you know, something like uh, the, the average gain was, it was very, very little. I think it was like the, a senior who takes this test, if that senior had been at the 50th percentile of freshmen, would be at the 68th percentile of freshmen. Why is that, why is that, a, why is that a relevant measure? You mean why think the test is important? Yeah, why would I, why could I give a shit less about what some test shows relative to whether I think and a student of mine thinks mm-hmm. that the experience they've had in my classroom was valuable to them. So two things. First of all, do you think, do you think learning is in any way measurable? 
I would say that the humanistic type of learning that we're engaged in, that none of its significant value is, is measurable. No, I don't. None of it. Okay. So like, <laughs> and I don't, so I, take, I think that that's, I think that that's pretty bloody obvious. Um, and that's, has been understood that way going back to the, to the days of the studio humanitas. Right. I mean, I mean, that's not what it's for. Right. I mean, that's not, it's not professional education. It's not technical training. It's not, you know, and I look, I mean, I've actually kind of agree with you in a certain way in that mm-hmm. I think that we've made, and I published an essay about this, which I should have probably, I'm now I'm kicking myself for not having sent to you because I've probably spent as much time criticizing the teaching of liberal arts as I, as I have defending it. I think we've, we've come up with in a defense because we're on the defensive in the institution, we've come up with a lot of bullshit arguments about the benefits that the humanities and liberal arts provide to people. And they're all by way of sort of tangible quantifiable benefits. Now I am inclined to think that those are all terrible arguments and are bullshit benefits and, and that you are right, that you can probably demonstrate that um, social scientifically that they're not, that they don't have those benefits. But I, I think that that was always a mistake to make the case for it that way. I mean, that's not the value of reading literature. That's not where the value of reading literature lies. It's not where the value of reading philosophy lies. It's not where the value of having the experience of these sorts of conversations in a college setting lies. And it was always a mistake to try and pretend that it was. So, um, okay. I have so many things to say. Here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So first of all, when you say that the value of a humanistic education isn't measurable by measurable, I'm not necessarily saying you could put a number on it. But I am saying that it's supposed to show some kind of improvement. And it would be weird to me if you, like, talked to your students at the beginning of a philosophy course and talked to them at the end of the philosophy course and found no difference whatsoever in the way they thought about anything you've talked to them. And you thought, oh, that doesn't matter. Like, because the difference I make is not measurable. Like, surely it's, even if it's not measurable, it should be noticeable right like yeah, there should be some change i would argue i would argue that it's very much noticeable but it's noticeable in the manner in which uh maturation and growth and the development of spiritual depth is noticeable but it's not measurable right so uh, how is how is that noticeable i mean Imagine. look i mean we, you could compare this problem to the problem of you know my parenting of my daughter right i mean you know she is developing Right. Right. And in, in myriad ways, some of which are measurable, explicit skills, but others of which are much more intangible um, uh, 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 matters of sort of, of depth, mm-hmm. of personal, spiritual, character, logical depth, um, um, uh, uh, sensitivity, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, a greater, a, a broader palette of appreciation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a whole bunch of things which are not measurable and in which I am not the sole source, but I'm one of many interconnecting sources. Right. Some right. of which is also involved the formal formal schooling. I just reject this whole way of I think that this is just this is this is a legacy of the effort to fit humanistic learning into the pre-professional model that now the, the the neoliberal university is just completely fixated upon. And I think we made a mistake in trying to fit into it that way. We were never going to, that was never going to be what was special about what we do uh-huh. and special about what the students get out of what we do. 
And now there's social science to prove that that's not what the value of what we do. Right. Okay. Um, um, but that doesn't mean that what we do has no value. It just means it doesn't have that kind of value. But so it seems to me that like, if you say that what we do is promote maturity, spiritual growth, spiritual something de- spiritual, spiritual depth, depth. So, uh, certain kinds of self reflective, uh, uh, uh <laughs> we, we help to cultivate this, the, the self, the self reflective dimension of a person's life. Um, we probably broaden their expand their range of interests. Okay. Um, um, should should this be noticeable in things like surveys of people after they go to college? No, right? not necessarily. But I mean, over over whole populations. So, like, you take you take. I have no some, idea. I'm not interested in whole populations. I'm interested in the group of students that I've taught, many of whose names I I, I you know many of whom are now friends of mine, five, 10, 15 years later, um, some of whom I've been involved with in all sorts of intimate parts of their lives, uh, mm-hmm. including uh, uh, officiating weddings. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess may- maybe you just have had a very barren, cold, empty experience, but I haven't. <laughs> and, um, and I'm not, I really don't care about what, about the, the general population. I have no idea why I should in terms of measuring what mm-hmm. I've done in my career with my students. Why do I give a shit about, about any of the, I, I guess I don't even know why I should care about any of the things you're wondering about, right? Um, I just don't care about them, right? And I don't see any reason why I should care about them. I care about the effect I've had on my students. And, and how do you know what effect you've had? Because I, I, I'm involved with them in an intimate, a lot of them in an intimate way, right? I know well, them. Here's the I thing. <laughs> I, I talk to my students. I know some of them. And a lot of them tell me, oh, you know, you're a great professor or you made a difference to my life. And I always ask them, how do you know? And maybe that's dumb of me, but I think it's like when I'm, when I, when I'm with a piano teacher, okay, I used to take piano lessons and when I practiced and then, you know, followed his guidelines and he would give me tips, I would see myself improving. Okay. When I took an art class here at CSUN, that's my university, I, the, the teacher did a really nice thing, which is, she had us do self-portraits at the beginning of the class, and then she had us do self-portraits at the end of the class, and she had us put all the self-portraits on the wall so we could see everybody's growth. Yeah, these are both examples of technical skills. Right. And so the question is, it's the worry I have is that when it comes to philosophy, it's very easy, or just any humanistic education, frankly, it's very easy to fool yourself into thinking you've made big, important changes. Like, I guess one of the things I'm very worried about is self-deception and the difficulty of self-knowledge. And um, and so when I say, how do you know you've improved your students? I think it's easy to fool yourself into thinking that you're responsible for something you might not be. Just like it's easy for my students to think I've made some important difference to their lives when it was not me at all. It was just lots of other things but, or yeah, just it's, it's growth all and maturity. It's all, of, it's all of it. I mean, I, I, I think that you may be projecting your own self delusions onto others. I'm not so sure we're all as delusional as, as you, as you might be. Right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what did I just say before? I mean, even with respect to my daughter's development, mm-hmm. I'm one part of an entire fabric of, 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 of individuals, institutions, practices, etc., that are involved in the process of her development. Right. And mm-hmm. as a professor in a humanistic discipline, 
I think there's a, a similar kind of, of, of participation in a broad network of, of things that, you know, one of the things that happens is, and I know this happens because my students talk about it, right, is something I'll teach in class mm-hmm. will then be the catalyst for something that winds up causing them to have a discussion late until 3 o'clock in the morning, right, mm-hmm. in the dorm, which is one piece of, 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 of which is a, a, a that a, a sort of thing that is part of what is so rich and, and, and valuable about just university, residential university life in general, right? But if you don't have all those individual pieces, it doesn't happen, right? Um, you know, I, I provide oftentimes subject matter that then the students go off with, and it has an, an effect on their social engagements and on their on their development. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and um, it, you know, stuff that's come up in class has caused students to just to decide to create clubs or to bring an issue to uh, a student organization that they're already involved in. Um, and um, now, look. Is it everybody? You know, I'm teaching 200 people a semester, right? Mm-hmm. Now, to me, it's more than enough to have that sort of impact on, you know, a handful of people every semester. Um, um, like how, how, how big a handful, just out of curiosity? Like 10 people? Five people? I would say in a class of, let's say, my typical class size is, let's say, between 50 and 90, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, in terms of what I would what I would call a substantial effect, maybe ten out of fifty or ninety. Between fifty to ninety, maybe between in a class range of fifty to ninety, I would say between let's say <coughs> five and a dozen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, who who I would say have a real a real, uh, a real, a, a real benefit from in terms of the sorts of things I'm talking about. Um, you know, well, prob- me- probably in the 20 years I've been teaching here, mm-hmm. I would say probably there's a good two dozen people that I continue to have substantial relationship with and whose lives I've become involved with mm-hmm. um, in ways that, you know, tell tell me that I that I in ways in which I know them in a way that I know what effect I've had on them, right? Um, okay. Not just by their telling me, but because I know them, right? Um, um, uh, I know them personally, um, and so and I, that to me is enough. I mean, I, I guess I just don't buy into this. You know, unless I'm saving ten thousand potbelly children in Africa, I'm not doing what I should be doing. I guess I just don't think that any of that's true. Um, well, let me ask you this: What if instead of ten, it was zero every semester? Would that cause you to have if I never troubles? if I never had any impact on anybody? Well, n- any impact that you noticed would that would, bother it, you? It would make me not want to be a teacher because that's that's part of the reason I I enjoy it. I mean, it, it would it would mean I would I would not. I would not enjoy my job. I wouldn't keep doing it if I had okay. no effect on the students. Okay. So here's the thing earlier, <laughs> you called me a few names, self-delusional. I wasn't calling you names. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> adjectives, adjectives. Um, anyway. Don't take this shit personally, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did laugh. Um, maybe one difference is that um, like, 
first of all, it could be that I just have done it to fewer people than you. Like I can only think of one person off the top of my head who continues to talk to me for um, years after uh, I stopped teaching him. <clears throat> but the other thing is that like it matters to me for the same reason those 10 people matter to you. Right? You were earlier saying you have no, you can't even understand why this is an issue for me. Like what could possibly be motivating me to care about this? Well, like imagine you did it for nobody. Well, you'd at least see why I'd care then. Okay, no, what if you did it for one person? You're misunderstanding what, I'm, what I didn't say I didn't care about. What I didn't care about were what struck me to my mind and you, from what you'd written and said as these tangible, quantifiable, measurable outcomes. Now, if you'd asked, if you'd said to me, well, what really matters to me is that I think I've made some difference in these students' lives, mm-hmm. I would have said, of course, that's important. Now, why the hell would I want to be a teacher otherwise, right? I mean, um, right? I mean, of course, that's the reason to do it, right? Um, um, well, what I was rejecting was the sort of the sort of idea that it's supposed to have some sort of quantifiably measurable out, outcome that I don't think humanistic learning has, right? I mean, well, should it, I guess I guess I I guess I'm I'm gonna stand stand up for quantifiability to some degree, right? Here's two things. Number one. Um, it's one thing to have an effect on your students while they're, while you're teaching them. It's another for that effect to stay like years after you've taught them. And I don't know that, that, that effect has stayed. It could be like, imagine here's an example Kaplan uses. There was a guy, he took French classes in high school for four though, because the, oh, you know, sure. I haven't mentioned it yet. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of what I'm, um, basing my worries on, at least about the effectiveness of education, comes from a book called The Case Against Education by an economist named Brian Kaplan. And well, of course it's an economist. He's, he's a more humanistic, actually he knows quite a bit about philosophy, and he's, he's much more humanistic than your typical economist. I'm but, just saying, you know. <laughs> well, no, he actually criticizes economics for not paying enough attention to other literatures like sociology and educational psychology and anthropology. But... Um, what he said in the book is that this guy he talked to, he had taken four years of French in high school. And he said, because I had taken that four years of French, um, one day I was in an airport in Paris and they called out a gate change. And because I had taken those four years of French, I realized that that was my gate change. And so I didn't miss my flight. And so that was a benefit of his high school French. And one of the things Kaplan asked is, okay, that's a benefit, but was it worth it? Was it worth the sitting in the class for four years? And you don't even have to do this in terms of just numbers. But see, I think I think it would be crazy to justify to try to justify foreign language study on the basis of that kind of benefit. I think that that, that that's just make that's that's just, just wrong. It misunderstands the value of studying foreign languages. Now, well, what is the value of studying foreign languages? You're not going to like my answer. It's it's what the sort the same sort of value is the value of studying literature and philosophy. But what um, I, I guess, I guess, I guess I'm I'm fine. I'm surprised at the sort of level of philistinism involved in this sort of critique, right? I mean, I mean, I would have thought that people who are engaged with humanistic learning, yeah, understand what it is and what is it, what it isn't, right? I mean, and it just seems to me like it's being constantly called upon to do things that it's what never what it was for to begin with, right? I mean, part of the value of studying foreign languages is literally. <laughs> to in a, sort of inhabit another another frame of another another linguistic and thus cognitive frame right yeah um, but here's the question does it do that 
Like, and but sure and he, it does, of course. Sure it does. I took how do you know? Years. I took seven because I took seven years of fucking French. Yeah, so that's you, and then there's me. But here's the thing: we're unusual. We're academics. We're we're actually professors in universities. We're good at that stuff. There's tons and tons of people who take these things, who are forced to take general education requirements, who pay all sorts of money to get a college degree, who like who like struggle. A lot of them are working class people who are working really hard to go to college and they find themselves forced to take courses they don't like, that they don't benefit much from. And the only courses they benefit from are just a small select few courses that are in line with the kind of profession they want to do. And I think that stuff matters too. Like the experience of the bad students matters too. And to say that, well, since it has a positive effect on 10 students, then the, the waste of time suffered by the 80 is irrelevant it's like, no, I don't think it's irrelevant. I think that matters too. Look, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get me to to, to disagree with. Look, I am, I am not a fan of the fact that we've decided to use the research university as an instrument of mass education, right? So you're not going to get an objection from me to the idea that there should be a lot more vocational education available and a lot more people should be going through it and not going through the university. You're going to get complete agreement from me on that. But this is the system we have, right? I mean, you know, I I can't change the way in which the nation has decided to use this institution, right? Um, And um, so what I do is I try to do the, the best that I can I try to, you know, provide the value that I think I'm providing to that fraction of the students. And I'm at least trying with the rest to give them an interesting experience mm-hmm. and to have some interesting converse and good conversations. And, um, you know, uh, the student evaluation is pretty much reflected. I do a pretty good job in that regard um, for the rest who probably aren't getting very much uh, of, the, of the, the deeper value that I believe it's possible to get out of it. Um, Okay, so this actually, I think that I don't see what's wrong with that. That just strikes me as being normal. I mean, what you would do. I mean, so this this strikes me as getting back to the thing that motivated the essay originally, which is you said we're in this system. Higher education is trying to teach a lot of people humanistic thinking on a mass scale, and we got to work within the system we have. You can't change it. Exactly right. You can't change it. Probably not anyway. Um, being part of this system where I suppose you make a difference for the top students, I'm just going to call them top students. I don't necessarily mean highest IQ. I mean the kind of students who want to be there, who want to get something out of it, who try to get something out of it. Okay? Yeah, but by the way, that does not in my case correlate with the highest scoring students. So um, I actually actually would strongly contest the top students aspect of it. Well, like, Well, I just mean top students, not in terms of grades, but in terms of the kind of people who are – best position to get something out of it, right? If that's who, who how you're are, defining it, then yes, that's fine. What, 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 what's a better way? Like uh, the most open students. The most, in, the most open, interested, invested, whatever you want to call it. But okay, they're not invested. I like invested. They're not, they're not typically the top scorers. As a matter of fact, I now refuse to teach in the honors college for precisely the reason mm-hmm. that the top scorers are so mercenary about the grades that they're actually the ones who learn the least. Um, in the course, I'd rather teach, I'd rather teach gen ed, remedial gen ed, where the students are literally fresh faced coming out of nothing. Um, um, I'd much rather teach them than teach the, in my mind, cynical, cynical and over sophisticated honors population who, uh, is in it for all the wrong reasons. Um, um, mm-hmm. uh, so, so 
if you define top that way, I have no problem with it. I just want to be very clear that it's not going to co- coincide with the, the top scorers. Yeah, so I shouldn't have used top because it has too many connotations about top scoring. So we'll just say the most invested students. Yes, that's fine. Um, so you're making I, – I think it's quite possible you make a difference to the most invested students. How how big a difference, how long-lasting a difference, I don't know. I think that's probably impossible to measure. Um, I would bet that it's there. I would bet that probably they're not going to get that just by reading stuff on their own on the Internet. There's something very valuable to having a guide who you can sort of like live interact with. And that's an experience that's getting increasingly rare, I feel, in our society, where there seems to be fewer occasions for like physical interaction. I agree. And more occasions for sort of disembodied. I hate online teaching. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think online teaching can be good, but um, it you have to be very savvy about how to do it. Um, but... I, I do think, so here's maybe the issue then, like, I've got these invested students and I've got many more uninvested students who are sort of there by force, right? They have to be, be in my class. Because well, they have they to have be to. in some gen ed course. It doesn't have to be mine. I mean, they have a huge amount of choices. Right. Well, some gen ed class or other. Yes. But, but, but they don't really know very much about philosophy in, in my students' cases. They don't have, like, it's not like, it's not like the public at large has a, has a clear sense no, my gen ed courses, they have no sense of it. I mean, that's, they're coming in completely. Right. So I, I don't think, I don't, just because they selected my course, it doesn't follow that they're there because they want to learn philosophy. They're just there because of the choices it seemed like for whatever yeah, reason. They, they chose it for whatever reason. They chose it from amongst this, uh, a, 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 a buffet of yeah. choices. Yeah. So I guess one of the things, and here's some personal stuff. Like, I think it's very easy to get trapped into a bubble. I think it's very easy to, to like do philosophy, for instance, and think this is the greatest, best pursuit there is. And, um, and I think it's easy to denigrate the kinds of concerns that people who aren't as interested in humanistic education have, right? The kinds of people who don't read nice books. What and, sorts of concerns are you seeing being denigrated? Um, cause I certainly don't think I've denigrated any of them. I mean, in oh, the not sense by that, you. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that, like, there are some people for whom humanistic education just isn't the thing, right? It, it just doesn't yes, resonate I don't think, with them. I don't think, as a matter of principle, people should be forced into it. I and mean, that's why I don't like the use of the university uh, as an instrument of mass education. I mean, I would not arrange things this way if I was the one in mm-hmm. charge of the system. But so I just don't do you- see anything wrong with my teaching the way I do and creating the value that I do within the frame of work, within the frame of an existing institution, the nature of which is due to forces that are beyond anybody's ability to individually. Right. So I just anything wrong with... So I guess my my worry... sleep over it the way you do. Yeah, I do lose sleep. Yeah, I don't don't get it. That's not just an expression, actually. I just don't Uh, get it. (laughs) Well, you know, I think a lot of this comes down to the, like, the moralization aspect right? Like, and, you know, I'm a practicing Catholic for what that's worth. And so, you know, I tend to think that, um, no wonder you're guilt ridden. Maybe so. I'm also Jewish too. I'm Jewish, but I'm not, I'm not religious. And so that part of it, I kind of, (laughs) yeah. So I, I I guess I, and you know, one of the things, you know, what I did my dissertation on was Kant's theory of evil. Yeah. 
And one of the things he talks about is basically everybody has a propensity to evil. Everybody starts out kind of in the thrall of evil, and it takes what he calls a moral revolution to become good. And part of the reason he thinks that, and he thinks very few people are good, by the way, and part of the reason he thinks that, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is not just to do Kant interpretation, but this was the part of Kant that really resonated with me the most. There's a quote by G.K. Chesterton saying, original sin is the most empirically well-supported doctrine in all of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And I see that in myself. I see all sorts of cases where I know I could be doing something better, but I just decide to do something worse, where I procrastinate instead of grading, where I um, get myself into these habits, where I where I don't have enough like uh, willingness to, to, to confront people on bad things they do because I'm afraid of what it'll do to me or my reputation. And, you know, I just see this within myself, all these ways in which I fail to live up to uh, the moral standard I think I ought to live up to. And I think probably you and I have maybe very different ideas about what, what the point of morality is or what the, its sphere is. And so when I see all these students in my class who are bored who want to be anywhere else, who have stress, who have anxiety, who are afraid of their grades, who just don't care about this stuff but have to take the class because somebody does it. And I see myself as like the face of the university that's doing this to them. There's a level of guilt I feel about that, that perhaps you don't feel. You really don't hear at all. I mean, as I'm listening to you. Okay. You, there's no part of you that has sort of like a reality check, like, okay, I'm, this is overwrought. <laughs> what I just did was overwrought. Like, I mean, no, I, no, I, to I, me, I, to me, to me, to me, there's almost like a tonal problem with what you, with the way that you're thinking about this. Like the minute I start are. hearing this, I start thinking, boy, man, take it easy for God's sake. You know I mean? It, it just sort of, I, I don't know. I just, when I, you ask me the things I worry about, yeah. You know, I spent I spent the last 6 weeks. I spent 6 weeks in New York. Right. With a father a 90-year-old father in varying states of complete fucked upness, right? Um so I was worried a lot about whether he was going to die, whether he was going to live as and come out as a vegetable, what was going to happen to my mother you know, my, about my daughter. So worried a lot about, worried a lot about that. Um, you know, I, I worry a lot. In, in other words, I just, I guess maybe I just have a much smaller pool. <laughs> Tell me more. What pool of what? Of emotional energy. Um, um, I just, the things you're worked up about, I just cannot imagine myself being worked up about in any circumstances. Um, yeah. Simply because, there are plenty of things I am worked up about and my God, are they of a different character, right? Um, um, I, I am just not worked up about the fact that a student that's sitting in my class that could have taken 10 others is bored. I mean, the yeah. way you described that just strike, struck me as, as dramatic, as dramatization and, 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 and this is, and, this is what they tell me for what it's worth. Maybe they're over dramatic, but they tell me they're bored. They tell me they're stressed. They tell me, they, All right. They, I mean, welcome to the li- welcome to the human condition. I mean, you know, you, you'd be you'd be bored and stressed and fifty other things you might be doing. Uh huh. Was there some expectation that you were going to go through life not being bored and stressed? I mean, I guess I'm just not all that moved, right? I mean, so what? Uh huh. So well, they also have debt. 
They also have family members they have to take care of. They also have jobs they right. have to do. You live do. in a first world country where people live to be about 80 years old and you have potable water and you're not living in a house with a dirt floor. And I mean, I just, I guess, I mean, I'm not, I guess I just, you know, this sounds very first world problem-y to me. I mean, I just, I just don't, I guess, you know, half full, half empty, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I, this is just stuff I can't get worked up about it. And in terms of, me evaluating my life, mm-hmm. whether I'm, you know, sort of making a some a some a net plus valuable contribution, mm-hmm. that's something I'm going to measure across all the different sort of spheres in which I operate. It's not just going to be focused in one place. So yeah, you know, I may only be really getting a ton of value out of ten people out of fifty, mm-hmm. but you know, I also just catered someone's bar mitzvah for free. Mm-hmm. And I also, you know, there's all sorts of other things that I do. Yeah. Um, but let, let, let me, I think, I think there might be something that sort of like, uh, does a good, might do a good job of like finding a dividing line. You're talking about how you don't have, I think the word you used was the pool, the pool of maybe energy or like interest in these problems. You have bigger fish to fry basically. I can get morally worked up over things, but they have to be bigger things than the things you're getting morally worked up over. The things you're getting morally worked up over to me are in the vast lie in the vast sphere of things that in my mind really don't have any moral valence one way or the other. Okay. They're they're in the tying your shoelaces or getting, putting on one shoe before the other kind of things that I just don't care uh about or spend any time thinking about. Right. The fact that people are bored causes me no moral worry whatsoever um, mm-hmm. um, um, because I was never under the impression that people were supposed to be able to go through life never being bored. So <laughs> well, no, that's, that's actually, not something that I'm concerned about. It's, it's even, uh, they actually should go life through being bored. Boredom is important in developing a sense of self, arguably, but um, I could leave that for another dialogue. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you make of, and this is, I know it's going to seem like out of nowhere maybe, but what do you, how do you feel about eating factory farm meat? Do you, do you care at all about that? Or no. do you like, okay. So that's something I often feel guilt about for doing, right? I, like I never do ever. Why, why not? I don't really care about chickens that much. Hmm. I care about, yeah. I care about people. I'm a humanist. Yeah. I mean, I have cats. I care about I my cats. Dog. Right. You care about your dog. Right. And if you knew that, like, have a you pig, read Cor- have you read Cora Diamonds eating meat and eating people? Uh, I, I might teach have, that. Every I don't remember semester. it. I teach that every semester. What's the All point right. of it? What's the thesis? I mean, uh, she's arguing against the a criteriological view of ethics. So what she's saying is that look, the reason why we don't eat people isn't mm-hmm. because of certain morally relevant characteristics they have, um, and the reason why vegetarians don't eat animals also isn't because of morally relevant characteristics that they have. Um, um, and she, it's a very smart piece. She's of course, one of the sort of contemporary Wittgensteinians. Mm-hmm. And she says that, 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 that the way in which we extend moral consideration is much more haphazard and less, less systematic than that. And has to do with the employment of what she calls thick concepts. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't eat my dog, but mm-hmm. if I was in South Korea, I would eat dog stew in a restaurant that served it, mm-hmm. and, and okay. not be worried about it for one second. 
Yeah, I'll have to read that essay because that doesn't sound very plausible to me. And that's about, by the way, 90, probably 5% of the population. And so, oh, I know, I know. So, you know, I I don't think that's that's ever going to change. People now are constantly, oh, wrong side of history, all that bullshit. I don't believe it. I don't believe it for a second that this, I don't believe for a second that the Cosmo vegan kind of thing that you find in the major. Cosmo vegan? What's that? Well, cosmopolitan slash, you know, the the sort of, (laughs) I don't believe that that is ever going to capture more than a very, very small percentage of the population's imagination. I just don't. Well, I, I think that when we can make meat in a lab and don't have to kill animals for it, I think all of a sudden, People will find factory farming a lot more objectable. Objectionable. That's a prediction. Maybe I could be wrong. Maybe I mean, um, if if that happens, which you know we'll see. Um, yeah, but I think I, I think that difference between us about the animals probably. You know how you when I listen to your dialogues with Crispin, and you and he have like a very sort of different fundamental orientation. Oh, totally different. I think that's metaphysics. why I like him so much. He's like completely alien to me. Yeah, I hate talking to people that are that are, that are like me because. <laughs> boring <laughs> um um i don't learn anything that way yeah um, actually i'm the same way as you as um, far as that goes yeah, he so maybe, completely different i think yeah um, yeah so so i think that thing about how like i i see almost everyone in my not i'm not gonna say everyone but like i see all my eating decisions i see a lot of my clothing decisions um like my, my, my having a car that has gas through Those moral, all are moralized. Moral lenses. You moral. You moralize all these things. Yeah, and it's very exhausting. Yeah, and you should stop. <laughs> Am I morally obligated to? No, pure, purely prudentially. You should just stop. It's not good for you, man. <laughs> That's what you know. I went to a psychologist to tell me the same thing. And uh, smart man or woman, you should listen to him. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I just. You know, maybe that would be the subject for another dialogue. But it's funny. I wonder yeah, we if could this discuss. Listen, we could discuss the morality everywhere. What I call the morality, it's you know, it's too much. It would require too much to do it now. In the oh, for sure. I think but, we've already gone in for an hour too. But I do think that we could have a very fruitful disagreement about the morality everywhere problem. And I do have substantial reasons why I think it's a problem. Okay. Uh, um. Um. And so we could talk about that at another time. Um, do you want to talk about this? Um, I think we can probably go on for another 15, 20 minutes or so. Okay. Do you want to talk about this thing? Um, this white, this white paper? Yeah. Um, You really didn't like that title for it. So do you want to, do you want to describe it to people or should I describe it to people? I'll do my best to describe it to people because this is more of an interrogation of your view. Sure, go ahead. So go ahead and tell, tell everybody what this thing was and what the issue yeah. was. And so it's it's actually I, it's a little bit difficult to describe. But basically, what happened, and because some stuff about it, I didn't read all the comments. So let me go back on Daily News, which is a, a philosophy blog that I think you've discussed on this show, or at least on the Electric Agra before. I had um, Justin Weinberg on the show. Yeah, I remember watching that. Before he and I had a very uh, public falling out. Yeah, I was hoping the public falling out would take place on that episode, which uh, is why I watched it so closely. I don't. I just. I don't treat people that way. And when I'm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, what happened is that there was a group of people. I think it was five authors who basically came out with a white paper about publication ethics, and they, uh, according to their own description they had convened focus groups 
They had talked to a variety of journal editors. <laughs> they had come up with a survey of about, I think, 200 or th- 265 philosophy journals and tried to basically see what are these journals' practices? Like, what are their practices in terms of issues of uh, misconduct? What do they count as issues of misconduct? Um, what what happens if there's like, is there any such thing as post-publication retraction, that kind of stuff? And basically... Uh, and that, that, those are, that's one of the big issues, right? Just the, we have to have standards because a lot of these journals don't have standards right now and this could lead to very thorny problems in the future. So it's good to sort of, sort of stave off these problems before they happen so you're not caught flat footed. And then the other problem that they pointed to was a kind of a lack of diversity in the journals, whether it's in their editorial boards or whether it's in their refereeing practices or maybe just the articles that get published. And by diversity, they mean, well, they mean diversity of skin colors, diversity of uh, sexual orientations, and diversities of gender. And methodology. Well, they said that. Well, yeah, but I mean just saying that that's one of the things they said. I think the former is a proxy for the latter, which is it isn't. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely not a perfect proxy. Um, and you know, it's only a perfect proxy if you're. It's only a proxy if you actually are a racist, right? Um, <laughs> right, um, right. Um, anyway, uh, go on. I'm sorry. And so, <laughs> basically, uh, one of the striking issues, one of the issues that struck people about the composition of the people who who issued the white paper was, I believe, three of the five. I don't know if I want to call them drafters or signatories. I think drafters of the white paper. Three of the five people were. Um, were people who I think signed on to a letter calling for Hypatia, which is a feminist philosophy journal, to retract an article written by a philosopher named Rebecca Tuval, where Rebecca Tuval argued that um, the same grounds there are to support uh, transgenderism uh, also exist to support transracialism. In other words... He was writing in the wake of the Rachel Dolezal case. That's right, yeah. Um, and trying to sort of work out the logic of the of 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 i identify as right um and that's all that she was doing um she wasn't uh i don't think that she was making i don't think she was advocating for transracialism she was trying to work out what the logic of self-identification entails right um right but isn't she saying that um if we accept that self-identification is a good enough grounds for uh, for identifying as a man or a woman, then similarly, it's good enough grounds for identifying. She's absolutely right. That's why. That's why it's, a, it's an informal reductio. <laughs> well, well, except I don't know that she took it as a reductio. Oh, I she think, might not have. I'm just saying my view of it was that. Yeah, it's a pretty damn good argument. I think. Well, yeah. So I haven't read the argument, so I don't know how good it is. But I know there are some people I respect uh, besides yourself who thought it was a good argument. Yeah. And, um, and anyway, a- after she wrote that article, there was a lot of, uh, anger, uh, from some quarters of the philosophical and, and non-philosophical community. I think there were some non-philosophers involved yes. with this as well, who called upon Hypatia to retract the article. That's right. And I think the main ground. They publicized a letter with signatories. Three of the five authors of this white paper of whom were signatories. A fourth who is on the advisory board of the white paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and a whole bunch of other people on the advisory board who were kind of sideline cheerleaders mm-hmm. for the letter. So um, 
the people writing the white paper for on the subject of publication ethics yeah. are the people responsible for what I would argue is the worst breach of professional ethics that I've seen since I've been a professional philosopher, which is why when I wrote an essay about it, I said, you know, if you love the Thieves Guild Guide to Property Rights, you'll love the, uh, you'll love the white paper because um, – it's just such an astonishing exercise in just flat out hypocrisy that I just, I, it's almost, I almost view it like as a work of performance art. Like I just look at it. I marvel at it. I marvel at people's lack of self-awareness, right? Of just how you look yeah, to people who aren't already captured by whatever insane ideology you're in, right? You just don't realize that you look like a complete lunatic to everybody else, right? I mean, and I just find there's almost a kind of a joy in watching people who I think are really terrible people, right? Um, uh-huh. To just sort of watch them just expose themselves in just such a, it's such an astonishing way, which right. is why the critique I wrote was, you know, laced with sort of humor and, and schadenfreude just because it was such a painful exercise and self outing to read the thing couched yeah. in such a serious sort of, you know, ser- a serious blanket, right? I mean, it, it just, not to mention, I mean, it's an, it's an exercise in some of the worst hackery in the world. I mean, others who are much more qualified than me in terms of understanding how to do social science and how to do surveys and what you can actually legitimately conclude from these things have torn this thing to pieces, right? Um, Brian Leiter featured a number of them. Um, on, Did he? I thought there were, I only noticed one, a guy named uh, and I think there were several people that he because this evolved over time, there were a bunch of reactions. So, so he kept posting updates to mm-hmm. as new, newer comments came in. <coughs> so anyway, the other, well, only other noticeable thing, notable thing about it, it seems to me is that one of the people on the, on of one of the drafters is the president of the American philosophical association. Right. Now, right. why does now, now that, that bothers you. I take it not because you don't think the president of the APA shouldn't, shouldn't say anything about publication ethics. Maybe you do think that. No, of course not. No. No. Well, you don't think they should get involved. No, 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 no. I have oh. no problem with that. The reason I, the, the problem that I have is. The particular ethics they have. The APA itself mm-hmm. has been so ideologically captured by this, by this sort of uh, a, a, a portion of, of the, 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 the profession that um, this just demonstrates even more. I mean, it, it sort of it, it makes it makes me really sort of hopeless mm-hmm. that will ever that institution will ever be wrenched out of the clutches of this really very, in my view, small faction. Um, um, you know, uh, philosophy. I once wrote a essay comparing philosophy to the sort of the, the 2016 election. Right. Um, 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 you know, a very tiny number of people in philosophy have this very strong ideological view. They've managed to capture a number of the institutions and they think everybody agrees with them, but there's an enormous, I think probably silent majority mm-hmm. who have much more moderate centrist normal views yeah. and just don't say anything about it because they just don't want to put, deal with being savaged across social media by these people. And so, but when, but it, it comes out at interesting times. You then see, oh wait, all those people were actually there. We just lost the election, right? Or you know, oh my God, all those people are there. Look at these surveys that show that you know, sixty percent of the profession, seventy percent of the profession, places what we think is a number one concern at the bottom of the pile of concerns, right? 
um, um, and philosophy has many concerns. And right. so, you know, I just, it, it, it reminded me how hopeless our governing institution is that, that the president of it was involved in this fiasco of a, of a, of a document. Um, just, yeah. So, okay. A few things. Um, I, I'd be, you said one thing that they think that most of the profession agrees with them. I'd be surprised if they think that actually, I would suspect that they think that most of the profession disagrees with them. And that might be like the problem, right? That like, Especially, and why are they so shocked and dismayed whenever the, whenever evidence comes out that they're that they're that they're, you know what I mean? The the the, the sense of the sort of the the surprise reaction. Yeah, you think they had a surprise? Like what 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 what's one thing you think they had a surprise reaction to? I I think they did have a maybe a surprise reaction to the two volt thing, um, in the sense that yeah, I mean they got enormous backlash. Yeah, I think they were surprised by the ferocity. They became of the pariahs for having done this. And I do think that they were stunned. I mean, by the, you know, I mean, they were shocked by the fact that, you know, what do you mean? You know? Right. So, so, so like, look at it. I mean, here's how I look at it. Like, <clears throat> there are some people out there who are very unsure of themselves and some people who are very sure of themselves. And uh, when it comes to like moral issues, right? Um, a lot of philosophers are, I think, kind of unsure of themselves, maybe because they've done a lot of philosophy and they're like, oh, this is really complicated. I don't know what to think. And others are quite confident that they have the right moral views about some things. And I suspect that a lot of the people who, who drafted this, this white paper, they might have, um, I mean, this is just me, armchair psychology, but they might have like a lot of, they might see a lot of complexity about certain of the like very particular issues. But when it comes to the big picture issues, <clears throat> which is basically that there are, there's, there's a dominant population, there's marginalized populations, there's all sorts of practices that are practices because they are from the dominant population. Those practices harm marginalized groups in ways that the dominant groups are often not aware of or don't accept when it's pointed out to them, and on and on and on. They think this is really pretty clearly, strongly established and not really worthy of debate in the sense that if you're going to disagree with it, it probably shows that you've just fallen into the category of the dominant right. ideology they, 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 they have the mentality of people in cults you're absolutely right <laughs> they, okay they, that's one way of putting they're it a cult. they're a cult okay like, and, and so so it's not necessarily the profession uh-huh. that has captured its institutions now i think that's a bloody disaster right well one scientology controlling i mean i mean you know i mean the this is like they're like woke scientologists right <laughs> um 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 i can't think of people i would less want <laughs> to, to run that prof- have captured the institutions that that run our that run our discipline right i mean I, I, it's a disaster right yeah um, um and i mean you know at the time you know there was a, briefly a, a discussion on on brian Leiter's board about whether we should create a new institution and i right. was pushing for creating a new institution and Leiter seemed more to think that we should try to work within the existing institution i don't think that's possible and I think that stuff like this just keeps reminding you why it isn't possible, right? Um, because the institution has been completely captured by, ident- by identitarian cultists <laughs> and um, um, who engage, who employ yeah. very, very um, devious and, and, and they, they don't, they fight dirty all the time. Okay. Um, um, and, and why do you, if, if they fight dirty, why do you think they fight dirty? 
Be- oh, and the reason be- I bring this up is because, because, because they because they think they're right. Well, and because also, they have a Manichaean view of the world, they 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 don't just think that they're right. They think that people who disagree with them are evil. Right. There, there was a, a New Yorker cartoon where two dogs are talking to each other over martinis, and they say it's not just enough that dogs succeed; it's also that cats need to fail. Right. Um, so, so maybe it's something like that. But the reason I bring up these questions is that. That strikes me like if you are engaging in underhanded tactics, it's also possible that you're doing that because you know you don't. Yeah, you know you're not in the majority, yeah. right? And you have to yeah. do things yeah. to solidify it. Yeah. Um, no, I think, I, I think you're probably right about that. I mean, it's more it's more like they forget <clears throat> it. You know what I mean? Like I think the surprise comes because they they operate entirely within echo chambers, sure. And so they wind up getting surprised when they periodically bump up against. And that's why in social media, what they typically just do is just block everyone. So, you know, Rachel McKinnon, who's probably the worst of this entire crop of people, and she was one of the signatories to the original Tuvel letter. This is the person who, you know, is, has such a delusional sense of self-importance that she actually went out and had a big public fight with Martina Navratilova, right? Mm-hmm. Um, about whether, you know, accused Martina Navratilova of being a transphobe. Um, you know, she just block. She blocks every. She just she employs this software that just allows you to block everybody, right? So, if she did, she unblocked her Twitter feed, right? The comments would probably be ninety five percent negative, right? I mean, in, in other words, she they 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 they, they, they cordon themselves off from anything so that then when they wind up, it winds up being shoved in their face. They're shocked and dismayed. But right. I agree with you that they probably do know that most people overwhelmingly most people um, don't not only just don't agree with them, but find their approach bizarre and weird. Although I, I suspect the approach is working, right? Not only in the sense that um, it allows them to achieve power. And I mean, I'm, I don't know like the extent to which they have power over the APA. I can certainly see why you think they do. I just don't know enough about how that organization works or even what it means to have power especially what it means to have power in philosophy in general. I agree. Look, I mean, to a, it's fair to say they're kings and queens of nothing, right? I mean, it, it's fair to say that, you know, what they have power in itself doesn't have very much power. So who fucking cares, right? <laughs> um, and I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair point. I mean, if you look at my work, I, this is not something that I spend very much time on. It's right. more when individual things happen that catch my attention and that maybe create a little stir that I'll sort of weigh in on it. But I'm not spending a lot of days sitting here, you know, wondering what to do about the APA. I mean, you know. Right. And so, so let me ask you, so this actually sort of goes back to the earlier part of our conversation, right? Because I do spend my days worrying about stuff maybe that I shouldn't worry about. When you like, do you think you, you give too much attention to this? Or do you think you get basically the right amount because you basically write an article about it once whenever there's a controversy? And I think I give about enough about enough attention to it. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. How do you do it? I mean, don't how do you have, I do don't, it? Don't you have a wife and children? A wife and child, yes. So how on earth do you spend a lot of energy worrying about this kind of stuff? Well, so for one thing, I'm off Twitter. I'm off Facebook. I found that that was making me a lot more anxious and agitated. <laughs> For someone like you, I would think that probably is a good idea not to be on. Yeah, it, um, it was a, it's been it's been great. Uh, I, I've quite enjoyed it. Um, and sometimes, like because I because I teach, right? 
I, I think about it a lot when I'm teaching. When I'm taking care of my son, I don't really think about it very much. And you know, it's funny. What's funny is that I actually, it actually makes taking care of my son a little bit less um, stressful because um, the the whole thought that I don't have that much influence over most of my students makes me think maybe I'm not going to like F up my son very much, <laughs> right? Oh, like when I do something bad. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's sort of like a, a barrier for that. Um, it doesn't, I don't quite take necessarily credit for his successes either, but I just sort of enjoy his company and yeah. it's sort of like kind of no pressure. But <clears throat> there is, um, w- one of the things you were, you were saying was that, um, in your article that you didn't mention is that not only. To, I, I, yeah, I wrote an article on this white paper. Yeah, I forgot just what it was. Calling called. it the white paper makes me want to shove my head through the drywall of my office. It's just so self, <laughs> it's so self-important, right? I mean, it's just like the white paper. What fuck? That's like when I, when you have your white paper, I think of like Winston Churchill, like, you know, re, re, redesigning the Middle East, right? I mean, bunch of fucking creeps, you know, writing a bunch of, <laughs> writing a bunch of propaganda about philosophy to try and ju- justify their horrible behavior um, towards Rebecca Tuvel. It's just, to call that a white paper, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. you want to smack somebody, right? I mean, it's just so, it's like, really, get over yourself. I mean. I, I, I don't have, like, when I hear the words white paper, it doesn't, I, I don't like, I think of white papers issued by the White House or something like that. It just doesn't, and I don't have much, I'm not like a, a president fan, <clears throat> right? So My father fought in the Israeli War of Independence. Uh-huh. So if, if you ha- are very invested in Israel, then the Balfour Declaration is a very present thing in your consciousness. And white paper invokes Churchill's white paper clarifying the Balfour Declaration, which had all sorts of enormous effects right. on what was going on in Palestine at the time, one of which, by the way, involved you know uh, imposing quotas on Jews coming in from concentration camps, yeah. which my father, who, whom my father was helping smuggle past British checkpoints. And so, you know, I think when I hear white paper, I think of, you know, and then I, you know, see some some purple-haired idiot, you know, from from <laughs> philosophy, you know, writing some bullshit that's just so transparently disingenuous, right? Yeah. Um. Um. And calling it white paper. I mean. So, I, so, so let me just say a couple of things. I do think it is. It's pretty clear to me that part of the rationale for this is to justify the conduct during the Tuval affair, basically to say to justify it in one of two ways. The first way being, look, what we said was correct. Let's put those publication standards into practice so that people, so that it's like a, an official fact. That won't happen again. Right. right. But the other thing it could be is that, oh, and I, you know, this, it, it can be both. The other thing that might be that like, oh, this Tuvel thing really reveals maybe a surprising rupture in the discipline about the nature of publication ethics. Let's have a quote conversation about that so that we know better in the future how to deal with this when it happens. But um, so, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't love the, the like self-justifying nature of it, but I do think it does raise another issue, which is that um, one of the big parts of the white paper was to try to increase diversity in philosophy by which at least partially is meant um, diversity of skin color, diversity of uh sexual orientation, sex, that kind of thing. Um, and one of the things I, I thought, and I've mentioned to you before, is that perhaps that kind of focus actually will have salutary effects on increasing enrollment in philosophy, especially as we get a more and more diverse country. 
And do you have any thoughts on that? Or do you think it just is so unlikely to have any effects on how philosophy is done? I don't think it'll have any effect. And actually in places like where I live, it'll probably have a negative effect. Right. The more, Um, the more, the more that philosophy gets associated with identity politics, the worse off it's going to be in states like mine. mm -hmm. Do you think it'll be better off in states like mine? I think in states like yours, it's already so far over the cliff, it won't make any noticeable difference. I mean, I, I just, I, and I also think that the forces that really jeopardize philosophy and the liberal arts in general in the, in the academy mm-hmm. are overwhelmingly of an entirely different kind, such that this is, that this is, you know, makes really makes no measurable practical difference. Um, mm-hmm. Eco- it's economic. It's it's fundamentally it's structural. It's it all <coughs> ultimately, in my view, ties to the use of this institution for mass education. Um, and we're now finding out that it, you just can't. Right? Mm-hmm. It's too expensive. It's just too expensive. And so right. they're, they're scrambling, trying to figure out what the hell to do about it. And one of the things is going to be a, a substantial, comprehensive restructuring that's going to essentially turn a lot of the universities into the technical schools they should have been to begin with. Right. Right. Um, and mine is going to be one of them. It's happening right now. I mean, my, my, my department head just had to just summarily fire two full-time instructors. I mean, just fuck them, just completely fucked them. Right. And she had no choice. This came straight from up top. How much and notice did she get? <laughs> like how much notice did the instructors not, get? Like none, none. I mean, like literally like, the provost met with the dean. The dean met with my department head, and the next day she went and, fi- and fired these two people. Um, and, and you know, so you know, to get back to sort of your earlier, one of the things you were saying earlier in terms of you know just what things I worry about and what things I don't. Yeah. And um, what things I take, you know, as 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 having, you know, whether I'm whether I spend my uh, night worrying about whether a student's bored. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to what I might think when I hear that two full-time instructors just got just got summarily axed, right? Um, this sort of thing does worry me, um, um, and I know what this sort of this, the the level of screwedness that they now are in, and um, um, and uh, look, I think ultimately the inst- the restructuring that's going on is not stoppable. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see any point. I didn't see any point back then trying to save the humanities by making up bullshit benefits that they give to people, the tact, the measurable benefits. Um, and I certainly don't think there's any reason to keep lying about it now. Um, um, uh, but, you know, the result is going to simply be that it's just going to become elitist again, right? What's good, the, the result of all of this that's going to be is yeah. the people who are going to get rich spiritually uh, uh, spiritually enriching college experiences are going to be rich elites in, in very, very tightly compacted places and everyone else is going to be going to a Votech, right? And, um, um, and that's, that's the funny thing is that all of this was, you know, always couched in the language of sort of egalitarianism and democratization and also all these sort of things. And we're just going to wind up with even a more elitist system than we had already. Right. Um, and uh, I think there's a certain uh, bitter, bitter irony in it. Um, yeah. There was a, a book by William Jerizowitz, I think called 
uh, useless sheep or something like that. And it was basically, he's a professor at Harvard, I think. And he was just saying that the Harvard students nowadays uh, are very, like you were saying about your honor students, quite mercenary and are just really worried yeah. about success and not really yeah. worried about greater things. But um, so, I mean, I think it's actually kind of a shame that those are the only people that are going to be getting philosophy and Shakespeare. And cause I'll tell you something. I mean, I have a lot of experiences. That's all anecdotal, but I don't, I don't see why I need more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I was still in New York, before I started at Missouri state, when I was teaching in New York, I used to teach at Lehman college, which is in the Bronx and my, you know, all freshmen, all black and Puerto Rican, um, overwhelmingly terrible high school educations, terrible living environments, crime ridden. The philosophy, and I didn't teach philosophy just alone. I taught an interdisciplinary arts and letters survey Mm -hmm. that was part of a program designed to help get people up to a common level because of the very varying high school backgrounds they had. And to this day, I would say that that population not only was the most rewarding to teach that material, but exhibited the greatest enthusiasm for that material. Right. And my attitude at the time was I'm going to walk into this class in the South Bronx and I'm going to give you an experience that otherwise you'd only get at Swarthmore or Vassar or Harvard. Right. You're going to get that at CUNY prices. Right. And the response was very, very, very emotionally intense and gratifying. Um, And um, I think it's really a shame that the only people who are going to get this education are going to be a bunch of entitled shitheads at Harvard. And it's going to be pretty much purged out of schools like mine and and lower um, and thus completely taken out of the lives of, of people who, in my view, are a lot more deserving of it and actually in many ways are much more capable of actually getting something out of it um, because they don't have that mercenary attitude towards their education. Um, um, they, they value it much more highly. They take it much more seriously in a certain way. Yeah. I think that's a damn shame. And, and you know, the social the, – these the sort of social scientific kind of arguments – just don't really crack my that 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 story that I'm just told, right? Um, um, you know, it's enough to me that that one black kid who I taught uh-huh. was so blown away by Baroque music mm-hmm. that he was a DJ and, mm-hmm. a, and a rap that he you know started mixing in Bach uh-huh. into rap mixes. Right. It mattered to me so much that that Puerto Rican girl who I had was so moved by the, the unit on the Renaissance that she saved up every penny from her various jobs and went to Italy so that she could see them herself. That to me makes the job worth it. Mm-hmm. And I don't care how many books by how many social scientists you throw me and tell me I'm not doing any good. I just say bullshit. I don't believe <clears throat> And okay. I have the personal testimony to explain it. Now, it's anecdotal, but I don't see any reason why I need anything more than anecdotal. This is my life we're talking about. It's my experience we're talking about. It's my job we're talking about. And why I do it 
And I don't make those decisions on the basis of what some social science survey tells me about the average effect of people I don't know all over the place. Right. Yeah. My personal journey has been rewarding to me. And I've had a lot of, in my view, very deep interactions and meaningful interactions with actual individual people. And that's, in my view, good enough. Well, um, I'd want to ask you more questions, but yeah. maybe we should give you, you the last word one. there. You do another one. Um, <laughs> that's my, my overall reaction. I mean, yes, it's sentimental. Yes, it's anecdotal. But I guess I would say that's the nature of what this is. And I, I think that the approach that you're taking to it is the wrong way of even looking at one's life and one's career. And I, I just don't think that that's the way it should be done. That's why I find the whole effective altruism thing very odd. <coughs> I, uh, I things like this. I mean, I, I think it's great. How do you make choices <laughs> like that? I, yeah, if we were machines, but we're people. We're yeah. individuals with specific life arcs and specific relationships and specific Right. I mean, that, that's, I, I, I think it's, path, honestly, I think it's pathological to make this personal life decisions on that sort of basis. I really do. Yeah. I think it reflects, well, I can... it reflects a misunderstanding of the intersection of theory and individual pr- particular, you know, yeah. anyway, you're right. We, we, we could do a whole nother <laughs> one on this. And I think we should, I mean, look, you and I have a lot, we disagree about a lot of things we, we intersect on. And I think, you know, if you if you're if you don't mind, no, no, no. I'd like to have you be a regular person. You know, I've, I I do Massimo less often now, just simply because he's very busy and because we've done so many that we kind of run out of things to talk about. So now I've been doing them with Crispin, but yeah. I think that you you and I have equally as much to talk about, probably in different areas than Crispin and I would talk about. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could even get to aesthetics one day too. Yeah. So you know, let's talk about the morality everywhere problem sometime because you know because you clearly think that that's the correct way to look at it, and I don't, and I think we should engage it specifically yeah. and not just as part of a, 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 multi, a you know a, a smorgasbord of things that we talked about like we did today. Well, we can make that round two. Yeah, round two, and and then you know whatever you want, but I I I think we we there's enough of common interest but substantial disagreement that we could have fruitful conversations. I take today as kind of a survey maybe of some of the areas in which we intersect because of mutual interest, but in which we have very different views. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we should, and maybe, maybe some more issues will come up in the next one. And I think also this stuff about quantification is probably a big difference we have too. Because I get the sense you're quite skeptical of social science in general, and, um, which is funny. When used for certain things, I'm not necessarily skeptical of it in general. I'm skeptical of the use of any framework like that yeah. to guide a particular individual life arc. Okay. In other words, I, I, I think social science is absolutely essential for the making, let's say, of public policy. Right. Right. You don't and shouldn't govern your life the way you make public policy. That, to me, represents a kind of derangement. A mis- I don't mean it. It represents a fundamental misunderstanding yeah. of, no. the rela- of what an individual life is and what its relationship is to the kind of the social fabric and then, later, and then <clears throat> the way you make decisions at this level as opposed to at this level. 
philosophy does philosophical theories do not directly affect any of the decisions I make in my life, my personal life. Huh? None. That's amazing. I said directly, directly. No, 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 no. I mean, because like one of the things it forms a fabric that I operate in. Yeah. Yeah. But, but one of the things that this brings up is like, there's um, this new, not new, it's actually quite old. There's this, there's this, there's a woman named uh, Megan Sullivan, I think at Notre Dame who's doing, she, she like started this NEH seminar called like the good life. And what she does is she's trying to teach introduction to philosophy through thinking about what it is to live a good life. Yeah. <clears throat> and one of the things that is striking about that, there's this guy named uh, Justin E.H. Smith, who's a professor of philosophy in Paris, I think. And he talks about, he has this book called The Philosopher, A History in Six Types. And he talks about there are six kinds of philosophers. One is called uh, the courier, who basically like flatters power. Uh, I forgot the, there's one called the curiosa who's interested just in very particular things and just wants to know all about one kind of thing in great depth. There's the sage, there's the, the, the ascetic, um, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, for a long time, philosophy was much closer to religion, right? And so I think that's, there's like something attractive about Kierkegaard, for instance, precisely because I think he wants his philosophy to be livable. Yeah. And maybe maybe one of the problems you think I'm having is that I'm looking at like these general moral theories and I'm trying to live them out. Yeah. Right? I think that that's a misuse. <clears throat> well, I think Kant didn't I mean maybe he was wrong but he did not think his theory was not to be used for guiding your life. I mean he thinks that that we already knew how to use it for a large number of issues and you know it's sort of for like new issues that we really have to figure out what to do. But you know I try to I I I I try to Try to try to live the philosophies, and the, yeah. one of the reasons I'm not a utilitarian, for instance, is that I don't think that's livable. Like the, all the calculations, like you know, one of the yeah. problems that happens is that, like, yeah. you know, saving a dime right now might make this gigantic difference in the future. So every single decision not only is morally significant, it has gigantic moral yeah. significance. And I think, well, well, there's lots of problems I have with utilitarianism, yeah. but um, I do think, you know, I am worried about like participating in things that make um, the world a worse place or like corrupt institutions, stuff like that. Yeah. And I do think that. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far with this. I mean, oh, no, sure. You're asking me, you know, would I go work for the Russian mafia? The answer is no. Right. I mean, and part of the reason would be ethical considerations. Right. Yeah. Um, 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 I just don't know that I think that the university is such a clear thing in that way. Um, and, um, but the thing about living out philosophy, you know, it's interesting. This is the last thing I'll say, cause you're right. We're, we're going very long. The funny thing is that, you know, Massimo wrote me in to be a, a co-writer on a book on philosophies of life Oh, coming out this year on, it's on a random house, um, um, penguin. Um, uh, I think it's on the vintage imprint and, um, so it's me, Massimo, Sky Cleary, and then a bunch of contributors. <coughs> and, you know, when Massimo asked me to do this, I'm like, Massimo, you know, I'm really pretty skeptical on this philosophies of life thing and this all this sort of stuff. I mean, and um, he and I even did a dialogue when his How to Be a Stoic book came out, and I really kind of pushed him hard on this idea of life manuals and all this sort of thing. Um, and... Um, and the use of philosophy is kind of an instruction manual, which I think is a, a misuse of it. Um, I also think it's, 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 it's misguided to look for instruction manuals. So it's not only that I think that it's, it's a misuse of philosophy to use philosophy as an instruction manual. I think it's misguided to, 
seek an instruction manual at all. I don't think a life is that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's reasonable to seek out an instruction manual to tell you how to build a model airplane. It's not reasonable to seek out an instruction manual to tell you how to live. That, in my view, we could talk. That could be another dialogue we could do. Yeah, I think it might be. <laughs> another. So I'm in this book. Uh huh. But I wrote a chapter which basically explains why I don't think you can get very much use out of a philosophy of life. And so I chose a kind of a I, I advocated a kind of a neo Aristotelianism where what the philosophy can tell you is something really, really general and all the real work is being done at the level of purely prudential and practical consideration, right? So, you know, you can get the golden mean, but all that tells you is don't do too much of something, don't do too little of it, do the right amount. It doesn't tell you anything else, right? Right. And so you can't really use it as an instruction. I mean, it, it, it sort of rather forms a frame in which you then go and make practical judgments. And... Um, so I, I wound up contributing an essay to a book on philosophy of life saying why there really can't be one. Right. Um, um, and, uh, and so, he accepted that, I take it. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh, that's great. it's coming out this year and, and, uh, and I also got to write the conclusion. And huh. so, um, um, but you, know, if you know, anything about, uh, it wasn't fun at all. And I'll tell you why, if you know anything about real trade press publishing, you know, these big operations, you're under an editor and the editor basically rewrites the entire book. The editor is a, is, is an invisible fifth author, fourth oh. author. Um, there's not a single essay in there that has not been completely worked over. Some of them to the point to which they're unrecognizable from in, with, with respect to the original. Right. Um, and this is how the entire industry works. It's not, this isn't some weird thing that, <laughs> that random house did. Right. Um, this is something that, is the way this works. Cause when I expressed sort of shock and when I saw the first edit, yeah. Massimo said, Oh no, this is how it goes. The same thing happened with this, how to be a stoic book. The editor basically rewrote the whole book. And um, yeah. I'm that's stunning to me because so much of a philosopher is his or her voice. Yeah. And listen, the reason why I am now almost exclusively self publishing and why I really do very little by way of stuff that has to be curated anymore is because I know I'm a good writer. I know what I want to say. I know the things I'm interested in and I don't want to have my work substantially altered by somebody else. Then it's not my work anymore. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, that's why more and more I'm just, you know, publishing on my own and expressing on my own platforms. Um, and, um, I wish it wasn't that way. Um, I wish it used, it was more like it used to be when, when, when people, you know, same thing in the music industry, um, um, where the, you know, the, 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 the corporation would just say, okay, you know, here's the money, go make your record mm-hmm. and not have someone sitting in there changing everything, right. According yeah. to a market analysis. Um, but, um, that's just the way it is now. And so, um, but yeah, it's it's just interesting that we're talking about this, and here I am. I'm contributing to a book on philosophies of life, while I'm saying that I don't really think there could be one, right? Um, well, except that's what you said in your book, so it's okay. But um, we can talk about that on another occasion, also, uh, Robert. I really appreciate this. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and um, uh, we'll do it again soon. And we'll, we'll, let's we'll, we'll email back and forth, and let's plan out a few more because so many things came up in this one that we could do individual shows on that I think we should and then go into it with the depth it deserves because you have serious arguments to make. 
And Thank they you. Sh- I should, en- no, what I'm being serious. In other words, what we did today really no, did I am, not, I'm, I'm seriously thankful. That's nice to really, hear. What we did today really didn't afford the ability to, to really pursue any of the arguments, but just to sort of give an impressionistic, your picture of things and my picture of things. But I do think that it, each piece deserves to be engaged with in a serious way. And so maybe what we'll do is do separate dialogues on each of the pieces. Right. Um, um, so anyway, yes. uh, thank you again. My pleasure. I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to talking with you soon. Likewise. I'll see All you right. soon. Yes. Bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.